Fake news gets thrown around a lot. It's a word that used to have a very discreet meaning, but it's come to mean basically any piece of news that you don't agree with. This is a science show, but today I'm going back through the history of social media and talking about how fake news came to be and hopefully how it can get fixed. It's a little less sciencey of a show than we normally have, but hopefully it'll still be interesting. This is Science Island on KACR 96.1 in Alameda. Okay, Leah, I've got something for you to listen to. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay. Don't be rude. Don't be rude. No, I'm not going to give you a question. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. Go ahead. Okay. Do you remember that fine moment in presidential history, Leah? (laughs) Terrifying and fascinating all at the same time. I do. So I know we are a science show. I used to be a tech reporter and editor, and I think there's a big overlap in fake news with the algorithms, which are secretly kind of running our online lives, and also how societies absorb technology how they absorb science and the problems that we have with it. Um, So are you ready to go, Leah? I'm so ready. And, you know, I feel like we're doing this at a really good moment in time as well, Um, simply because I think you and I just, you know, the insider baseball of being in journalism, I don't necessarily think that a lot of people outside of the media are aware of sort of the processes behind it. And there's almost, I would venture to say, like a scientific method to when you are um, trying to cover a story and how it's addressed, it's almost similar to how scientists have to go through a very rigorous process when they're trying to get, say, published in a scientific journal. There's a process to it, right? Um, Something that you're super aware of, something that I'm very aware of. And now I feel like it's more of a mainstream conversation. You know, what are the mechanics that go into that reporting? Yeah, and I also think I've kind of had an inside view on how we got to this point where we have fake news online because of my life in journalism. And you watch the same things happen that I did. Uh, So I'm going to start this by going back in time way back, Leah, 2011, there was... That's a long time ago, Grant. I know. It's back <laughs> back when the world made sense, sort of. Mm-hmm. There was protests going on in Iran, and I wonder if you remember what the Obama administration asked of the social networks at the time. I don't remember what did... So, first of all, like, them going to the administration going to the social networks in and of itself and like, you know, uh, uh, a nice sense versus an aggressive sense, which we've seen from our recent presidential administration sort of shows you how things have changed in a nutshell. Yeah. It was kind of this point of optimism. The Valley seemed to be pumping out all these things and, that we're improving our lives, they're making our phones better. And the Obama administration actually asked Twitter to delay some sort of server update so they could keep feeding the people of Iran information via Twitter. And then a couple years after that, we had 
Egypt's revolution, people were naming their kids Facebook in the midst of this this revolution. And there was sort of this idea that social networks were going to bring in this new era of democracy. Do you remember any of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Arab Spring definitely felt like a positive moment in time in a lot of ways. Obviously, it, there was a lot of violence that went into that as well. Um, but certainly from the standpoint of, you know, working for um, digital companies, which both of us were doing at the time, um, it felt like you were part of something that really mattered and could really help people, which I think a lot of people who are in the news business, that's why they got into it in the first place. And if you look at what people now think about Facebook and Twitter as either giant wastes of time or uh, seedy underbellies where people can trade things, trade news stories which aren't true, uh, it's kind of remarkable to go back just five or six years and we kind of had this rose-colored glasses on what this technology was going to bring to us and all the, the various things that could happen. Um, anyway, it's just kind of a, a point in time, which I, I think is worth recognizing, that that we used to think that these social networks were going to help democracies organize. The world was going to end up a better place because of them. You know, there's been a lot of... Um technological progress that's gone into these new sort of communication devices. Um, and we've, we've all participated in that. I literally don't know a single person today who doesn't have either a Facebook account or an Instagram account. And that's a really huge thing in the sense that we have this democratization of communication, which could be a really beautiful thing. Um, but part of that democracy is what sort of crops up when people aren't going through um, the rigorous processes of of making sure that facts are true. Totally. Did you know people who worked at Facebook a couple years ago? Mm-hmm. I visited the campus a couple times, and they really thought they were saving the world. <laughs> I, I, here's the thing. I think they still do. But they're... I think what's come to light in a lot of ways are the complications that are involved when you cut out um, human judgment from the news sourcing process. Um, and I'm sure you're aware of, you know, there are these startups and um, new media organizations that are um, trying to remedy that. So they're doing things like having editors comb through thousands of people pieces of content and flag them as being trustworthy or not trustworthy. And there's a whole other subset of um, concerns that that could also bring to the fore. Um, but people are figuring out that something sort of has to be done. Some people are sort of just voting for, quote, real news, and they're getting a subscription to a traditional newspaper which, of course, like you and I have to applaud that. Right. Um, I mean, so. I think that's the best fix. Do I think society could just put this genie back in the bottle and all of us read newspapers? Unfortunately, I, I do not. And mm -hmm. I will say in the midst of this whole fake news discussion, which we're currently having, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. I think there's some fixes here. And I actually worry that the biggest problem might be that we go too far. And... um. I'll talk about that in a minute. So uh, kind of 
By the way, do you think Zuckerberg can be president in 2020? I guess so. Really? I mean, <laughs> here's the thing. If anything, the last presidential election taught us. Yeah, don't like, make We never know. Um, I will say like the the past three presidential elections, I've been wrong about who I thought would actually win. And not because I was, say, rooting against Obama in 2008. I I wasn't um, just in the interest of transparency, but I really like I really didn't think he would win. So I don't necessarily trust my instinctual gut on that anymore. And I don't know that any of us can. If you've seen any of these pictures of Mark Zuckerberg making his tour across America, it's really something like that. These are not photos you take unless you're thinking of running for office. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he can afford a fancy photog. If you know what I mean. <laughs> here's what I don't you think. might as well. Here's what I don't think he understands. Uh, I don't know anybody who really likes that product anymore. Uh, and especially coming off the 2016 election, I think his reputation is more of the type of man who invented asbestos or put lead in our gasoline than mm. it is someone who could possibly be president. That's a dark statement. Yep. Uh, okay. Well, so our current president the sort of like products that he was associated with were mostly not that great either. But the American voting public at the end of the day didn't really care. I'm, um, I'm not going to dispute you there. Okay, so as I'm walking us through, <laughs> through this history of uh, social media, this is sort of the next step for me. Let's let's see if you can hear this. <laughs> Okay, that's plenty of that. Uh, basically, what was that, Grant? The, what was that? So what happened next after Egypt, after Iran, was we got to see what could happen on social networks with people who weren't interested in promoting democracies. And to me, nobody ran, uh, nobody showed that more than ISIS. They put out these incredibly well-produced videos and were able to get their message out on the news in just the most horrifying way possible every night. And it was kind of, it should have been more of a wake-up call, I think, for social media companies, and it wasn't. They dragged their feet on figuring out that problem. And I think that's a problem that we're dealing with. We're reaping, we're reaping the problems from it right now. Yeah, and one of the things that um, I've been sort of fascinated by in the sense that uh, the quote power when it comes to communication has certainly been spread more evenly, which is a good and a bad thing. But you and I have also had um, experience with what can happen when traditional media companies agree to embargo or hold back certain types of information to um, uh, to protect people. So, for example, I'm sure you are aware when. Um, the newspaper we were working for would agree to not publish any information about, say, a kidnapped journalist um, in the interest of keeping that journalist alive. And that would require sort of a synchrony with other traditional media companies to agree to, yeah, we're not going to publish anything about this until we have a firm handle on, say, the journalist's location or um, who exactly is holding him and what happens when, you know, ISIS or newer groups or 
newer media companies say can have sort of the same um, access to information, the same ability to publish, um, is that those lines are erased. There's less of a synchrony involved, which could be perceived as a good and a bad thing. But certainly in the case of ISIS, I mean, has just been horrifying on a global scale. Yeah. In some ways, this is a story about a new technology upending every single institution, which we know. And social media really is such a minor technology when you think about it. And we've been totally unable to predict what's happened to it. And you're right. Like, there's this Anybody can put anything online now. You can leak things online. There isn't an editor involved anymore. And some people are really happy about that. Uh, and some people aren't. But it's sort of, like I said earlier, the genie's out of the bottle on it. Like this technology is changing our world in ways that we can't, we can't fix. Yeah. So, you know, to go back to your first audio clip that you shared of um, our president, hollering at people about whether they're fake or real. Like, I get this sense with sort of, you know, just an average consumer of content. It's like, yeah, they would like some help with figuring out what's real and what's fake. Um, I think that's somebody that something that we can all get behind in a way now. Um, I could use a little help. Anytime I scroll through Facebook, or, you know, Twitter, for, or for example, it's hard to tell, like, what the sources are for things. And that's for somebody who has, like, a decade of experience in figuring out exactly that. So I just feel like there are some mechanics involved that we can put into place to sort of help people. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so I'm going to talk about what I think was the first fake news, and I don't use that in a Trumpian sense. I mean the first news that would go online and people would share it, and it didn't matter if it was true or not. And this kind of goes back to, I would say, lower-grade, high-output journalism shops and viral videos. And there just seemed like a period a couple years ago where it was more important to get something up quickly than to make sure it was okay. And a lot of these viral videos would get debunked and everybody would kind of shrug their shoulders and be like, oh, well, you know, viewer beware. But these would always make it on the local news channels. Do you remember during Sochi, Jimmy Kimmel would put up just this ridiculous videos of wolves walking through the dormitories and it would get covered <laughs> by like NBC. Do you remember this? I don't remember that, but that guy is... A hoot and a half. <laughs> what I'm saying is Jimmy Kimmel knew that fake news was coming. Let me let me see if I can find this clip. Turns out there is no Wolf of Sochi. We were all duped. On Wednesday, American luger Kate Hansen posted a video to her Twitter account. She wondered if a wolf was wandering down the hall of her dorm. Well, Thursday, late night host Jimmy Kimmel announced Hansen was just joking. In fact, they were in it together. Kimmel's people even constructed a fake dorm hallway in Los Angeles and had someone release a domesticated wolf to complete the trick. Hanson didn't even tell her teammates about the prank. Yeah, and you are, you're saying that that was the first piece of fake news. What I'm saying is, 
Come on. Things things were speeding up so fast. Uh, distribution of these viral videos was going so fast, and there were so many of them which were blatantly false, and nobody was standing up and saying, wait a minute, let's slow down. Let's stop this. This is a problem. Nobody cared that these viral videos were fake. And mm-hmm. Jimmy Kimmel was putting this stuff online and kind of making fun of the fact that he could get anything he wanted published, even these ridiculous stories. He was warning us about 2016, Leah. He was the only man who saw it coming. Yeah, he's the canary in the coal mine. And um, I think Twitter in particular has gotten some heat for um, fueling the release of news that just isn't quite factual yet. So, for example... A lot of times before Fidel Castro actually died, somebody would post on Twitter, Fidel Castro died, and it would sort of pick up steam. And because so many people were retweeting it, um, media organizations thought like, oh, maybe this is actually real. Um, So we were sort of like caught up in that spin cycle. Um, But at the time, I would say that was maybe like, what do you think, like eight to 10 years ago that that was happening? Yeah, Um, I think so. Now, I think people are a lot more cautious. And anytime somebody posts that somebody's died on Twitter, I think everybody takes that with a grain of salt now. Right. And that's where I really see hope in all this is I think we are going to be stronger as a society after this. And we're we're going to be able to, to be a little bit more critical about our news and but like i said that's has has yet to show up so i had an interesting entirely on background conversation with someone who works at a social media company they said free speech for these companies is a business plan facebook is the number one purveyor of news in this country twitter is probably the the fastest news feed for most news organizations. They have operated using free speech as a way to maximize the amount of content they get. And that way they don't have to regulate what's coming in. So companies are opening the floodgates. Is that what that source meant? I think that's what he was referring to. They don't have an incentive to clamp down on this stuff, or they haven't had an incentive to clamp down on this stuff because content is content for them. And they've pretended that they aren't a news purveyor. They're just this go-between. They're just a bulletin board between you and your friends. And as a result, it doesn't matter what they put on their page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can't be held accountable in a sense. Right, but they're a private company. I mean, in the same way, the New York Times is never going to have a front-page story that isn't true that makes Nazis in America feel better about themselves. Why does Facebook allow that? And that's yeah. that's a real question if Facebook is going to be the biggest news purveyor in this country, which they are. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that you don't necessarily use certain social media networks as much as you used to. And probably most of the people that we know don't. Do you feel like most of that is really motivated by the sense that whenever you're on there, it's all junk? Absolutely. And so that's where another ray of hope in this is Twitter and Facebook are 
facing a decline in how people think about their product. So they have a real incentive to clean that up. And that's one ray mm-hmm. of hope I yeah. find in this fake news thing. Yeah. Or, you know, there was a world before Facebook. There was the world before Twitter. And they were created out of, you know, what came before. Um, I've never expected those social media outlets to always be the go-to. Like, in a certain way, the kids are going to realize this is really uncool and I don't like this and I want something better. And one of those kids is going to, you know, launch something that hopefully is better. Um, what I think we're all sort of waiting for with bated breath is like, is it actually better? And what are the forces that are generating that change? Right. Uh, so I'm going to take us to my next point in fake news, and I don't have an audio clip on this, mostly because this was happening and I was kind of uh, oblivious to it. And that is the 2016 election. And the fact that I was oblivious to it and spent some of the time covering it, I should be deeply embarrassed about, and, and I am. But as we know now, fake news stories were doing better on Facebook than real news stories. A lot of them were designed to undermine Hillary Clinton. Uh, we, we now know that there was some Russian involvement, and the Russians also pushed Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein Uh, They also attacked all of Donald Trump's Republican primary candidates. All this was going on, and it never showed up on my news feed because of the people that I follow were less likely to share this stuff. So it was sort of a Mm two-part problem. It existed, and it was kind of hard to see unless you were part of the groups that were, were spreading this stuff. Yeah, and I think that also goes hand in hand with yet another reason that um, social media companies have an uphill climb when it comes to um, mission and perception is that um, uh, people tend to think of them as an echo chamber, which they certainly are. We tend to have friends who are similar to ourselves in outlook and background. So what does that do to our you know, perceptions of the world? It means that we can't really tell like what's going on on a global scale, um, which is, you know, certainly frightening. Um, but for this coming election, we're spending such a, a large portion of our attention and time in a space that isn't reflective of reality. Entirely true. Entirely true. So I, I'm going to call this final stage weaponized fake news, which is where we are now. So we kind of start off with social networks can do all this great stuff. Let's keep them cranking in Iran and Iraq. Then we move to, wait a minute, ISIS and Al-Qaeda can also use social networks. Um, Then we move to fake news kind of becoming a degraded term in the U.S. media and a lot of fake viral videos being given the same prominence as real news. And now I think 2016, we're in weaponized fake news. It appears as though... Russia had a concerted effort to undermine us with propaganda. Uh, This is where it gets truly embarrassing, Leah. Would you have ever guessed that for a few, like, I don't know, $10, $20 million in Facebook ads, you could make a sizable dent in America's democracy? Yeah, it's really, (laughs) it's just sad. And and here's the thing. I feel like as Americans, we tend to put our... um, 
our position in the world on a pedestal that doesn't really exist. And this um, experience of the last election knocked us down a peg. Um, but I do think there's a, a portion of the American voting public who still doesn't believe that we were knocked down a peg. So are we going to make that journey ideologically before the next election? Or will we just go through it all over again? Yeah. And I think you could make the statement that this fake news problem, the fact that we don't share the same basic facts as a democracy anymore, I think you can make that in a nonpartisan way. Um, and I also think you could make the argument that you don't want Russia to be able to sway elections for a few million dollars. Like To me, is the part of this which I think can be, be fixed. I mean, that seems like an absurd thought to me. Yeah, it's something that we should all be able to find common ground on. Um, and I think that there has been a lot of attention, obviously, put on Russia in particular, um, with Mueller, et cetera, going on. But what other countries maybe got the tip like, hey, we should be trying this too, and they're going to be taking a crack at it, even for the midterm elections. Um, it, it certainly isn't just a, a Russia versus the U.S. world. There's so many other interest groups out there. There are so many other countries that probably would want to have a say in how um, things shake out for our country. I mean, if this really cost Russia $30 million, you think about the amount of people who would be interested in swaying an American election who would be willing to spend that. And it's a, it's a terrifying list. So I thoroughly believe this is an existential problem. Um, when you become a U.S. citizen in this country, you have to take a, a set of questions. You have to take a test. Mm -hmm. to, to me, that's really emblematic of what makes a society work. We have the same beliefs and the same facts that we go off of. And right now, social media is undermining that, which we should all be freaking out. <laughs> yeah, and I've heard that our citizenship Ship, our citizenship test is so much easier than other countries. <laughs> the question for me is like, how does this get fixed? And like I said, I see some rays of hope. I think there's a lot of market pressure on Facebook and Twitter to clean up their act. Um, I think people are getting smarter. I think the government is doing enough that this won't be the same problem in 2020 that it was in 2016. I think there'll probably be new problems. I think fake videos and our ability to f to fake someone what someone's saying is is going to be a huge problem in a couple of years. It's only starting to be a problem now. Um, but my worry is that in these fixes, especially when they're done through algorithms, we may end up going too far, and these algorithms may start limiting speech in certain ways, which we don't want it to be limited online. So as much as I said free speech is a business plan for Facebook and Twitter. I also worry that they have the ability to really crack down on speech in, in a way that would be counterproductive. Yeah, it's an interesting point um, in time for consolidation of power. Um, I think you're a little bit more optimistic on all of this than I am. <laughs> Coming from a dark place. Um, but, you know, this is a science show. We talk about cutting edge technology. I think there is um, something to be said for the power of invention 
and the speed at which that invention now happens. Um, a year or two down the road, the conversation could be totally different and it could be because um, some really groundbreaking um, forward thinking people have done something about it. And that's certainly what I hope for. Zuckerberg 2020. <laughs> Fingers crossed. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Leah. Well, thank you for talking about fake news today. Thank you, Grant. Well, that's it for Science Island on KAACR 96.1. As always, you can find us online. If you like the show, if you didn't like the show, let me know. I'm on Twitter, Grant EB. Thanks always to my co-host, Leah Hitchens, and we'll see you again next week for another episode. 